The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week, rather than our usual one, because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I am delighted to be joined today by Daniel McCarthy, who is editor of Modern Age, a conservative review. He's also vice president of the ISI's Collegiate Network and a spectator contributing editor and columnist. And Daniel, you wrote a very interesting column for the Spectator's World Edition at the end of last year called the 2024 Regime Referendum. And I think we'll get onto that in a second. But first of all, I wanted to get your views quickly on the latest Trump news, which is that his attempt to appeal for presidential immunity in relation to the January 6th indictment, it's very hard to keep on top of all the latest legal shenanigans with Trump, but that so far, well, the story yesterday was that the judges seem sceptical of his claims that he has presidential immunity. Daniel, I know you're not a constitutional scholar by trade, but you do seem pretty up to speed on the Constitution. What is your understanding of presidential immunity and do you think it applies to Trump in relation to January 6th? Well, Trump is making a very, or his lawyers rather, are making a very sweeping claim. And uh, they're basically saying that the president cannot be prosecuted for his actions during his administration. In theory, it would seem to make the president above the law completely. And their claim is that, well, you have the impeachment process, which uh, Congress is responsible for while the president is in office. Once the president leaves office, there's apparently nothing that can apply to him legally, that he can't be prosecuted for uh, things that he had done during his administration. That is a legal reach, to say the least. And I'm not surprised that judges are looking at this very skeptically because, the again, it would put the president above the law. This would apply, of course, not only to Trump, but to any president whatsoever. And it's kind of a, a breathtaking claim. And um, I suspect that, you know, if Trump's lawyers are unsuccessful in making this case, it won't really be the uh, end of the world for Donald Trump at all. There are much more fine grained questions that have to be asked about each of the indictments that have been leveled against him. This sweeping claim of immunity, especially with respect to January 6th. Obviously, if Trump's lawyers prevail, this would, uh, you know, kind of be the end of the story. This would be, you know, total victory. But um, this is, you know, kind of an attempt to just uh, settle it very quickly at the highest possible level. I don't think that's going to work. Instead, it's going to have to be much more of a piecemeal battle. You know, the whole question of January 6th, Donald Trump didn't do anything that is, you know, on the face of it illegal. But obviously, his opponents want to say that he was part of a conspiracy, that he was not only, you know, speaking in a way that generated these crowds, which then went in and protested not just at the Congress, but actually went into the Capitol. They want to say that Donald Trump is personally responsible for that. That's something Donald Trump never told the crowds to do, 
but it's something that his opponents obviously are claiming that he's responsible for. So I think that's going to have to be adjudicated, you know, specifically as opposed to this sweeping claim of immunity being successful. Uh, Trump went to Washington yesterday. He he could have been in Iowa campaigning, but he chose to be in D.C., even though he didn't have to be, had no legal obligation to be at the appeal. The obvious interpretation of that is that he knows how beneficial in the polls these trials have been for him so far, and that particularly with just a few days to go before the Iowa caucuses, it's not harmful and indeed possibly beneficial for him to turn the story into Trump on trial again. To what extent do you think he is deliberately doing that? Oh, I think you're exactly right. Uh, But it is a risky strategy because while that may work very well with the Republican base and that may work very well in Iowa, it has some hazards when it comes to the New Hampshire primary because the New Hampshire primary, which is a week or so after the Iowa caucuses, is open to voters of of any registration. It's open to Democrats and independents as well as Republicans. Uh, You can have crossover voting in the New Hampshire primary. So even though core Republican voters tend to be enthusiastic about Trump and enthusiastic about defending him whenever he's on trial, and this seems to be a strategy that might work very well for him with core Republican voters, it's a strategy that could backfire spectacularly with independent voters and with crossover voters in New Hampshire. And I think right now, the fact that you see Nikki Haley rising rather rapidly in the polls in New Hampshire is something that Donald Trump should take very seriously. And that at this point, he should not just be thinking about appealing to the Republican base. He needs to be thinking about appealing to independent voters, a lot of the voters who supported him in 2016, who might be much less enthusiastic about defending him in the face of these trials and who would rather hear Donald Trump talk about the issues as opposed to talk about his personal travails. Um, The fact that New Hampshire has this open primary, uh, do some Republicans regard that as problematic or is it seen as quite a good litmus test of a a Republican candidate's ability to appeal in the presidential election in November? It's very opportunistic. So in 2016, there were a number of Republicans who hated Donald Trump, who said that the fact that Trump did well in New Hampshire was a result of some of this crossover voting and that this should be viewed as illegitimate. You've had that argument arise, you know, in various election cycles, whenever there's a Republican who does well in New Hampshire, who isn't liked by other Republicans. Right now, uh, it's an argument that some of Trump's supporters are making against Nikki Haley. They're saying, well, the reason Haley's doing so well is because she's appealing to people who aren't really Republicans. But I think the point you raised is exactly right, that uh, ultimately a Republican nominee has to go before a much wider electorate than just Republican voters in, uh, in, in November when it comes to the uh, general election. So, you know, an open primary like this is a good test of whether a candidate not only can appeal to the Republican base, but also has some appeal to a wider public. Um, you, you seem more, uh, I wouldn't say enthusiastic about, because I don't think you probably are, but more open to the idea that Haley might win New Hampshire than the polls would suggest, even taking into account her recent surge. Do you think that Nikki Haley could win in New Hampshire? And if so, can she pose any kind of threat to Trump, given his dominance in the polls? It's unlikely that she would win in New Hampshire, but um, you know some of these polls have her now within uh, single digits of Donald Trump's uh, place in the New Hampshire polls, and if that's correct, then you know you have the potential for an upset. So I would still bet against it, but uh, I think Donald Trump would be mistaken to dismiss the possibility. The other thing too is that you know it's a matter of perceptions as much as it is immediate results, and I think you know if Nikki Haley comes within, you know, 10 points or less of Donald Trump, there's going to be a lot of coalescing around her 
And that's going to keep her campaign alive for a while. It may not be enough to get her you know, anywhere close to the Republican nomination, but it will make it a two-person race potentially. And I think it would be very inconvenient for Donald Trump. So the possibility, you know, it's slim, but I think it's something that actually looks more likely right now than the idea that uh, Ron DeSantis would pull off any kind of upset. And, uh, you know, several months ago, it seemed like Ron DeSantis was someone who, even though he was trailing Donald Trump, might have the potential to outperform his polls. And uh, right now, it looks like that's more more likely to be uh, Nikki Haley who's in that position rather than Ron DeSantis. It's funny hearing you talk about New Hampshire, because I remember in 2008, you and I were working at the American Conservative, and the New Hampshire primary was won by John McCain. And there's a very good line in your column in Spectator World, which I'd never heard before. It's a joke from the Ron Paul campaign, which is, it doesn't matter how you vote, Republican or Democrat, you still get John McCain. And that speaks to the regime, which is what you're talking about in this column. And Nikki Haley is obviously to some extent, a regime figure. For listeners who don't know, can you explain what you mean by the regime and why you say that 2024 is going to be the regime referendum? Yeah, what we're seeing is, you know, with all of these legal cases that have been brought against Donald Trump and all of these, you know, rather extravagant attempts by Democratic secretaries of state and other officials to throw Donald Trump off of the ballot in numerous states, this is not just a you know typical election where it's one candidate against another. This is an attempt by a whole series of officials, Democratic officials, but also I think you know prosecutors and others, people who represent you know uh, government at various uh, levels, and also you know we saw both during Trump's administration and, and subsequently that there are you know individuals within the United States intelligence community within sort of permanent bureaucracy in the United States as well, who are happy to either defy presidential orders if Trump is in the White House or leak information that would be damaging to Donald Trump, whether he's in the in office or out of it. All of this suggests that, you know, it's not just a race between two candidates right now. It's rather a battle between two systems. The one system being the one that is already in place. It's certainly one that the Democrats feel you know comfortable with, not only because they have office in many respects, but also because they have the sympathies of most permanent government employees. And on the other side, you have Donald Trump, who represents a disruption of that entire network of power, not just among the Democrats, but among permanent government employees as well. And you've seen over the past year or two, a great deal of coverage in the U.S. press of Donald Trump's plans to purge the U.S. bureaucracy if he wins office, to, to basically uh, you know, revolutionize the civil service make it much more responsive to the president, much more responsive to Donald Trump, and to prevent the kinds of sabotage or defiance that took place during his first administration. So that's, I think, what the real stakes of the 2024 election are. It's not just a typical Republican versus president race, but this is rather a race between a sort of permanent power, which the Democrats now represent, and Donald Trump's kind of um, you know insurgent resistance to that permanent power, that permanent power being something that Donald Trump has called the deep state. And I think uh, many other Americans, certainly many Republicans, would also use that term. It's interesting that Trump is talking about the deep state in this way still, and that the reaction to it is the same among Democrats. You know, in 2016, I remember reading that Trump was going to be a dictator, and you hear it again in 2024. But this time, it is a bit different because Trump himself, while he has a person, has stayed the same. His movement, his the people around him, they do talk much more in 
revolutionary terms, I won't say authoritarian terms, but the language of the Trump campaign is retribution and the theory that the Trumpists have is that they were too weak in 2016 and that Trump tried to accommodate the establishment too much and that this time they need to clear it out. So while Democrats obviously sound hysterical when they talk about dictatorship, there's no doubt that Trump in 2024 is a far more radical figure in some ways than he was in 2016, is there not? Well, I would separate two things here. On the one hand, you have just pure rhetoric and, you know, sort of irresponsible persons on the internet and especially on, you know, the social media network formerly known as Twitter who shoot their mouths off and say all kinds of nutty things. And um, that doesn't really amount to anything in terms of policy and in terms of what's going to happen if Donald Trump becomes president. Then on the flip side, you have uh, much more serious people who are actually working on the question of how do you find loyal staff for the, uh, you know, a, a Trump presidential administration? And then how do you reform government and change the permanent bureaucracy? Uh, that's not a move in, in the direction of dictatorship. It's actually the opposite. Right now, the American public, which according to the U.S. Constitution is sovereign and is supposed to be have a say over <laughs> what happens in government, the American public has very, very little control over the permanent bureaucracy. The permanent bureaucracy is a extra constitutional force unto itself. If there's anything dictatorial in the U.S. form of government these days, it is this extra constitutional bureaucracy, which has basically been ceded a number of powers by Congress that the Constitution itself vests in Congress. So you have, you know, basically regulators and unaccountable bureaucrats are now able to wield more power than the typical congressman is. One reason why Congress seems like such a joke these days is because it has diminished its own power and responsibility to such a point that you can have people who are just peacocks and who are just, you know, kind of uh, uh, exotic birds, so to speak, out there displaying their feathers, as opposed to actually getting work done, because Congress isn't really all that important for getting work done in the U.S. government today. Now it's all the bureaucracy that does the day-to-day -day work and that often is making the regulations that are most, you know, have the most impact upon Americans' lives, upon uh, businesses and so forth. And this uh, permanent bureaucracy is, again, totally unaccountable. So Trump and his team are trying to uh, uproot this, you know, um, extra constitutional system that has taken over the American government. And that itself is, you know, I would say it's a counter-revolutionary uh, movement, but it nevertheless is a movement that would be quite drastic if it actually lives up to its potential. And that's something that obviously everyone who likes what the permanent bureaucracy is doing, everyone who likes the power wielded by the deep state is, is terrified that Donald Trump and this, this, you know, sort of new team of very serious people will actually succeed in changing the way the federal government operates. And again, I would emphasize it's really getting it back to the Constitution where political decisions that are made by the people and that are made by the U.S. Congress and the uh, elected president, those should all be the proper places where decisions are arrived at, not at the level of you know, unconstitutional experts who have been appointed by Congress and who then are not responsible to the American people. Uh, it's interesting you mentioning the weakness of Congress because, of course, there's an ongoing budget fight in Congress, and that really is the only Congress story of the last few years, in many ways, is it not? That Congress just rouse over how much to allow the bureaucracy, the federal bureaucracy, to spend. Is that the correct way of saying it? It is. And if you look at, you know, these continuing resolutions and other attempts by Congress to avoid falling off a financial cliff, what you find is that it amounts to giving a massive blank check to a huge number of government agencies, a huge number of projects. It's never just 
a carefully created budget which limits what each agency and each department can do. Instead, it's something that is an omnibus package of everything. And you see this with respect right now to foreign policy questions, for example. So what Congress should do if it actually wanted to have a, an honest debate about these things is put, for example, Ukraine aid, put aid to Israel, put all of these different forms of financial aid into separate bills, bring them before the House, bring them before the Senate, and let congressmen and senators vote on them. Instead, however, what you have is this uh, always sly attempt to take absolutely every issue and package it all together so that nobody can vote against it. Because if you vote against Ukraine aid or you vote against uh, giving money to Israel, then you're also voting against a package that may include some additional funds for U.S. border control. And if you support U.S. border control and you don't vote for this package, then there are going to be less funds available for border enforcement. Right now, the big debate is that there really isn't a lot of money being put forward and not really a lot of restrictions on, you know, the sort of extravagant open borders almost policy that uh, Joe Biden has been following. Republicans are very unhappy with that. So they're, they're saying we actually are willing to vote against this bill because we think even if you've got all these other elements in it, first of all, we're not thrilled about some of those other elements, but we also think that it's far too weak on immigration. And uh, unless it's much stronger, we won't vote for it. But that in itself goes to show if it could be suddenly strengthened with respect to immigration, even Republicans who are skeptical of things like the Ukraine aid, they would go along with the bill in order to get you know, much stronger immigration enforcement policies. So um, this is typical of the way Congress works, but I think it has a, a detrimental effect in the long run on Congress's ability to take responsibility and to actually live up to the expectations that voters have of it. You mentioned immigration. In, in 2016, very much a winning issue for Donald Trump. Uh, a lot of talk about the wall and so on. It met a lot of resistance, but what the election proved is that actually voters really are concerned about immigration, just as they are all over uh, the developed world. In 2024, as you suggest, there is a, quite a serious crisis on the American southern border. There has been for some time. It seems to be getting worse. Do you think polls currently suggest Donald Trump would beat Joe Biden in November? To what extent do you think immigration and a sense that Trump is the person who will deal with immigration or has has shown that he can deal with immigration to a certain extent. To what extent do you think that's causing Trump to lead Biden in the polls? Well, you're right. It, it has become such a crisis that even Democrats, to some degree, are alarmed about it. And um, you've seen this, you know, sort of ironic turn of events where a number of Republican governors at the southern border have uh, created systems or incentives uh, for some of the illegal immigrants who are coming through to transit through a place like Texas, for example, and get all the way to New York. Now, New York City considers itself to be a sanctuary city. There are a number of other Democrat-run, or as we call them, blue cities, where they proclaim themselves to be open to immigrants of you know, all legal statuses, including the illegal ones. And a number of Republican governors have put this to the test and have said, OK, if you really want to be so welcoming of illegal immigration, why don't you take these people instead of us? And uh, this has turned out to be a shock to Democratic mayors and uh, Democrats uh, in, in places where, uh, well, because they're not on the border, they thought, well, this is it's very hypocritical. Let me put it this way. The Democrats, they don't really have a lot of control over the U.S. border, the U.S. border, the longest, the state that has the most, you know, exposure to the U.S. Uh, southern border is Texas, a Republican state. So when a lot of, you know, Democrats in the northern part of the United States, when they talk about how, you know, wonderful illegal immigration is, 
they're not having to deal with the immediate impact of having people coming across the border illegally. Republicans, uh, like the governor of Texas, have now created a situation where they are passing on those illegal immigrants to places like New York. And so uh, they are nationalizing the issue, basically. And even a lot of Democrats are now discovering, oh, this really is a problem. Where do you physically put all of these people? Do you take schools and hotels that may right now be paid to house um, U.S. veterans of wars, for example? Do you throw people out of those beds and put in illegal immigrants because you have no place else to house them? What do you do with all of the you know, medical services and other services that are needed by this massive new influx of population? What do your schools do when they suddenly have an influx of people who don't speak English? This is something that can totally overwhelm small communities on the Texas border. It's something that even large communities like New York City find very difficult to handle. So it's something that even Democrats at this point are aware that Joe Biden is failing and something has to be done. And um, it certainly is a force that is working to Donald Trump's benefit as we look to the 2024 election. I think a lot of independent voters and even a few Democrats, uh, certainly some Democratic voters, are starting to think, you know, something has to be done to get the border under control. And Donald Trump would obviously do much more of that than Joe Biden would. Mm. And, and Nikki Haley, who we were talking about earlier, she is quite soft by Republican standards on immigration. And that could well hold her back, particularly if she does well in New Hampshire, goes down to South Carolina, her home state, where she should be popular. But at the moment, it looks like Trump is further ahead of Nikki Haley in Carolina than he is elsewhere. Yeah, I think it's the uh, sort of self-inflicted drawback of the strategy that Haley is following. So she wants to try to get all voters who are uncomfortable with Donald Trump to support her. She wants to appeal to the moderates within the Republican Party, people who find Donald Trump's rhetoric far too incendiary and Donald Trump's behavior far too outrageous. But in doing that, in claiming that center ground, what she's doing is, of course, alienating conservatives, especially on extremely important issues like immigration. So I think that puts a real cap and ceiling on how well Nikki Haley can do. Again, New Hampshire, because it allows crossover voting, might uh, give her you know, surprisingly good results. I don't think she'll win, but I think she'll do very well. Uh, then she goes to the next contest, which, which is in her home state of South Carolina. And she'll do respectably well there because she has well-established roots, although I think she won't win New, uh, South Carolina. She's not positioned in a way that will allow her to do well in, in succeeding primary contests over the course of the next several months. So there's really not you know, a kind of locomotive here that is getting to a, a station, that station being the Republican nomination. I don't really see a path for Nikki Haley to become the nominee. But by appealing to the parts of the uh, electorate that don't like Donald Trump and are not comfortable with him, um, she can do very well as an index or thermometer of how much discomfort there is with Donald Trump. And in a place like New Hampshire, where you have crossover voting, that can be very significant. So, um, you know, that's her strategy. But without having conservative voters, you know, I don't see any path for her to get to the nomination. This is kind of the flip side of Ron DeSantis. DeSantis made his whole campaign about trying to be more conservative than Donald Trump, uh, more conservative than anybody else. And his idea was that he could show that he would try to do most of the things Donald Trump would do, but do them more effectively. And that he's you know, a younger man, he could have two consecutive terms as president, he'd be able to get a lot more done that conservatives want than Donald Trump would be able to do. And conservatives just haven't bought that, or at least voters haven't bought that. They have instead uh, you know, stuck with Donald Trump as someone that they have confidence in, someone that they feel they have an established relationship with. And so there's really no oxygen left for someone like Ron DeSantis. That's why his poll numbers have dropped precipitously. 
Uh, whereas there is still an element in the Republican Party and an element in states like New Hampshire that are unhappy with Donald Trump. They're not enough to actually win most Republican primaries or caucuses, but they are enough to give you know a candidate like Haley a chance to eclipse Ron DeSantis and be the the runner-up candidate. I just don't know the polling on this. I mean, are there signs that Trump voters, are, I mean, obviously some Trump voters have gone to DeSantis, but it seems to be quite a small number. Is there an element or an extent to which once you voted for Donald Trump in America, he's such a divisive figure still, he has sucked up so much media oxygen, so much controversy over the last few years, that you can't really give up on voting for Donald Trump because you've committed you could probably be shamed into changing your vote. But most people feel, in the way that with Brexit, a lot of people felt that it started to define them. Being a Trump voter became their identity, and so therefore they're just not going to switch away from Trump, even if it makes rational sense, logical sense to do so. It's a commitment, and also, you know, voters look at politics as a kind of combat. And they see Donald Trump as someone who, certainly in terms of his rhetoric, is willing to take on uh, Democrats and take on progressives, and for that matter, take on, again, the you know sort of powers that lie outside of the Constitution in terms of an increasingly woke corporate America, in terms of a mainstream media, which is hostile to all conservatives, not just Trump conservatives, but really, you know, if Nikki Haley were to become the Republican nominee, which I don't think is going to happen, um, you know, she is much more similar to John McCain than she is to Donald Trump. But the left-leaning media would still present her as being a till of the hun. And we've seen this over and over again. It doesn't matter how moderate or how libertarian or how you know middle of the road or even how progressive you might want to present yourself as a Republican. You are going to be the worst thing since Mussolini as far as all the mainstream media is concerned when you get to that November election against the Democrat. This is why I put absolutely no credit in these polls that occasionally show Nikki Haley doing very well against Joe Biden in a general election. The reason you have polling like that is because the media is presenting right now a very benign picture of Nikki Haley because they see her as being a way to uh, damage Donald Trump. But if she actually became the nominee, again, she would be presented by all the mainstream media as far, far worse than any Democrat could conceivably be. She would be basically presented as the new Donald Trump. So voters look have, have the same sort of attitude. They look at these kinds of elections and they say, this is a battle. Donald Trump is a fighter. The fact that all of these forces don't like Donald Trump actually makes us like him a lot more. The fact that the deep state doesn't like Donald Trump, the fact that the media doesn't like Donald Trump, all of that tells voters that Donald Trump must be doing something right. And, um, you know, DeSantis was also certainly widely disliked by America's progressive and when I say progressive media, I mean, we're talking even about the mainstream media. I mean, we're talking about, you know, CNN and, you know, the Washington Post and so forth. I mean, all of them have, you know, political leanings, which are considerably, you know, to the left, even of self-identified left-wing magazines of 20 or 30 years ago. So DeSantis has that too, but DeSantis doesn't quite, you know, generate the same amount of hysteria from progressives, from Democrats, and from the mainstream media that Donald Trump generates. And so that, I think, is one of the things that draws voters to Donald Trump. It's also why all these legal attacks on Donald Trump's all this, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of shocking, but progressives themselves, uh, enemies of Donald Trump themselves, they call what they are doing to Donald Trump lawfare. This is a silly term, but it's also a, a deadly dangerous term that these people actually consciously use. Now, when you start comparing your actions to warfare, and when you're talking about weaponizing law and using law as a weapon of war, 
you know, it seems to me their rhetoric is, if anything, even more alarming than anything you hear from Donald Trump. This idea of lawfare is absolutely antithetical to the idea of impartial rule of law. And I think, you know, conservative voters, they're certainly, you know, hearing this kind of rhetoric and they're saying we need to support the person who is against this entire system that is now being weaponized, not only against Donald Trump, but against all conservatives and against, you know, Republicans in general. And that's, again, why I wrote a column saying that really the question that's on the ballot is the legitimacy of the American regime right now, not in terms of the Constitution, but in terms of the extra constitutional powers, which have, you know, actually been in charge of American government through the deep state and also that are reflected by the alignment of powers outside of government in the media and increasingly in corporate America, certainly in the academy. I mean, we've seen over the past few weeks the scandal that Harvard has had, where Harvard University's president has been a flagrant serial plagiarist, and yet it was uh, you know, very difficult to get her to resign. And even after resigning, she's still getting $900,000 a year, apparently, in, as a salary from Harvard, simply as a professor and administrator, even after resigning as president. This is pure corruption, and this is obviously, you know, just a a smack in the face to Americans, you know, who believe in meritocracy and believe in actually doing honest work and getting paid or getting promoted based on the honest work you do. That's not the way that, you know, progressives work. It's not the way Harvard University works. It's not the way the Washington Post or CNN work. And it's not the way that, uh, you know, well, surprising enough, the permanent bureaucracy in America has to be a little bit more meritocratic because there are some laws that govern that. But it is, uh, in terms of its partisan alignment, it is absolutely tilted in favor of supporting Democrats. And in fact, there are studies of how lopsided the um, political contributions from American bureaucrats are to the Democrats. I don't want to uh, name the figure offhand because I, I may be misremembering it, but it is, uh, it's, I think it's way more than 70% of them are, of their donations are going to Democrats. Yes. It seems quite obvious that Joe Biden's election strategy is based on uh, fear-mongering about Trump. We've seen these speeches in recent days. We see Democrats going around talking about dictatorships, that the next Trump administration will be a dictatorship and so on. This leads quite a lot of conservatives to think, in varying degrees of conspiracy theory thinking, that it's a trap. You know, think about commentators like Ann Coulter, that, you know, Republicans are walking into a trap that the Democrats have very obviously set up. But they are pushing the legal persecutions of Trump quite deliberately to make him as he wants to be the story and to secure the nomination effectively for him. And therefore, because they know or they think they know that they can in the end beat Trump because there's such a strong anti-Trump contingent. To what extent do you think, A, that is feasible that the Democrats are doing that? And also, to what extent do you think, you know, they, they could be right? It could be proved right. I mean, Trump could end up being a sort of Marine Le Pen figure of the American right in that he will always win the the party nomination, uh, but he will always fall short of a majority. And I accept that majority doesn't matter. Yeah, it is um, paradoxical because on the one hand, the attempt of waging lawfare against Donald Trump to get him thrown off the ballot, to get him thrown in jail, these are serious. They're not just, you know, ploys that Democrats are employing in order to try to get Donald Trump the Republican nomination. They really would like to see him thrown off the ballot. They really would like to see him thrown in jail. And they also are aware of these recent polls, which show Donald Trump being able to beat Joe Biden. So even if it was the case, perhaps six or nine months ago, that some Democrats thought it would be great to have Republicans nominate Donald Trump because they felt like, you know, they beat Donald Trump in 2020, they could beat him again in 2024. At this point, a lot of Democrats are absolutely terrified 
of the idea that maybe Donald Trump will win again. Maybe he actually will be able to beat Joe Biden. So it's not the case right now, I think, that any Democrat is saying this is great for us, you know, if Donald Trump gets the nomination and that we're not at any risk here. Also, if Donald Trump gets the nomination and then wins the, the presidency again, these Democrats are very worried that he really will change government and, you know, make it more responsive to the voters in such a way that it will severely, you know, compromise their grip on, on, on permanent power, not just power in cycles when it comes to who gets elected president and who gets control of Congress, you know, every two years, or every four years, you have these elections that decide this question. But Democrats right now, progressives and left-wing people have this advantage of having a permanent bureaucracy, which regardless of what happens in the elections at the ballot box, you are always going to have these bureaucrats and administrators who are on your side and who sympathize with you. Well, Donald Trump could change that if he actually is successful in uprooting this deep state. So no, I think uh, Democrats and progressives see Donald Trump as a deadly threat. They're not rooting for him to do very well. They really do want to put him in jail or or at least get him thrown off the ballot. And uh, they are not confident that, that Joe Biden would definitely be able to uh, to beat him. It would be a very strong contest. Now, that said, the other point that is in play here is Donald Trump has a tendency to want to talk about himself rather than talk about politics. And uh, if he goes on the campaign trail and is just constantly talking about his legal travails and persecutions, I don't think that's going to play very well with independent voters. I think that's not going to play very well with, you know, voters who might, uh, you know, be kind of the winning or losing margin for either candidate. It's going to, it would appeal very much to Donald Trump's personal base. It would appeal to a lot of core Republicans, but I think it would actually limit his appeal when it comes to the general election. So uh, that is a danger and a temptation that Donald Trump could fall into, which would, I think, damage his chances uh, in November. But Democrats, you know, even though they see the potential for that, they're looking at those numbers and they see, wait a minute, Joe Biden is such a weak uh, contender that um, even with these cases against Donald Trump, you know, if he's not taken off the ballot, he could actually win. And that would be a big disaster for Democrats and progressives. And then finally, there's also this battle will continue one way or the other after November of 2024. And even if Joe Biden is successful in getting reelected, I think you're going to see that the Republicans would probably do very well in the 2026 midterm elections. Joe Biden would be a weak president historically, Presidents who are in the sixth year of their administration tend to do very badly in midterm elections. So the chances that Republicans would have a strong comeback in Congress in 2026 are very good. And then that would set things up for 2028, where the Republicans would probably retake the White House. So even if Democrats succeed in in reelecting Joe Biden this year, they still have a very gloomy future ahead as things currently stand. And Donald Trump, either personally or in terms of the force he represents in American politics, seems to have the, the, the wind at its back and the future is closing in on the direction he wants to go. And the question is going to be whether the Republican Party has the nerve to see that through or whether after 2024, either Donald Trump himself softens up or Donald Trump loses and you get someone like Nikki Haley seen as being the future of the party. And then it becomes a party that's much more willing to concede and make concessions to and uh, you know compromises with the deep state and the Democrats. On that brilliant summary of uh, the landscape of American politics, Dan, I think we'll end it there. But uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you about everything. So lovely to see you and um, please come on again soon. Thanks, Freddie. That's all for this episode of the Americano podcast. I'd like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Ferrose, and urge you to leave a generous, kind, and warm-hearted review of this podcast uh, on whichever platform you listen to it. 
And Natasha has just reminded me uh, that if you want to be like her and work uh, for the Spectator's Brilliant Broadcast Division, there is a job going to be a Spectator producer. Uh, it's a wonderful department and they're doing incredible things. So Natasha can now put the, uh, down the gun that is put <laughs> next to my head. Uh, do apply, I should add, uh, for this job can be found in the bit of blurb on your screen under this podcast.